starting in your life, and that this would be a place where you can belong to people and belong to God. Um, to do that, we have these connection cards that you'll find in the seat in front of you. We'd love to have you fill one of those out, drop them at the connection center back there. We'd love to be able to hear your story, get to know a little bit of how we can come alongside you and help you, and share with you some of the cool things that God's doing in this place in rearranging our lives and reshaping us so that we can better reflect Him. Also this morning, we're pretty excited. Uh, we're starting a brand new series. If you guys have been coming to Genesis for a while, you'll notice that it looks pretty different up here. Um, looks pretty cool up here with the new artwork and everything. Today we start a new series entitled Conversations. This is on life, God, other things. We can talk about science and culture. And the goal of this is to see what God says about our lives and about himself and how we can live our lives for his glory in the midst of the world we find ourselves in. Another exciting thing that's going to be happening today, if you guys have been around for a while, you've heard us talk about the city. Uh, if you've been reading the blog, you've, heard, you've read about the city. Last week, we started to roll out the city. This is an online platform that's going to help our community communicate with one another. Uh, we'll be able to find out what events are going on uh, on the city and things that are coming up. It's also going to help our children's ministry and checking in the children and keeping track of them and communicating with parents. This morning, if you haven't had an invitation to the city, so last week, community groups and ministry teams all got invitations to join the city. If you didn't get an invitation this past week to join the city, we want to invite you to join now. In order to do that, we just need your name and an email. So if you can take one of these connection cards, whether you're new or you've been here for a while, and at the bottom, just fill out your name and an email and say, I want to join the city. Today, you'll get an invitation um, and you'll be invited to join so you can keep track of what's going on. You can get involved and stay connected. And then I also encourage you, take one of these pamphlets that you'll find um, either at the seat you're in or a seat that next to you. This will tell you everything that you need to know about the city. This will get you going. Um, and if you have other questions, you can come see me. I'd be more than happy to work with you on that or one of our connections people as well. One more thing that's happening today, I know it sounds like a lot, today's trash day. And everyone's always excited for trash day, right? Today we're going to gather at 4 o'clock uh, in the center of Woburn, um, on the center green, that lawn there, and we're going to pick up trash for the city we live in. Uh, this is a great way that we can serve as a community, a very practical way. So 4 o'clock this afternoon, I invite you out to join us in the center of Woburn, um, on the grass we'll be meeting, there's a, there's a nice open grass area, and we'll go off in a lot of different directions and pick up litter and trash as a way to just love this city, as a way to bless this town which we live in. So I encourage you guys to come out for that. Now we're going to jump into um, the message, and Michael's going to come up. Before we do that, let me pray for us, let me pray for him. Father, you are a good God who is not silent. You have spoken and you have acted in our lives to redeem us. We praise you for that. You are worthy of all praise. This morning, we've all come from different places. We've all had different weeks. We've all had different mornings. And I pray that now you would open our hearts, open our minds, and that your spirit would speak to us and that we would be willing to listen. Father, I pray for Michael as he opens up your word, as he speaks, I pray that his words would be yours. Father, and I pray that they would cut us to the heart so that we would understand how we can better love you and serve you and glorify you in all things. We ask this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. 
Welcome uh, at my walk. My name is Michael, and I'm um, excited that you guys are here, excited for uh, the new series that we've been praying about and planning for some time, for months and months and months. Uh, and I wanted to just open and share a story about a boy and a girl, and in this story, I will be the boy. And uh, in this story, the girl will be uh, who is now my wife. But I met Kyla when we were at The Ohio State University. Thank you. And um, it's all right. I don't need all your love, just a few people to love. That's okay. We met in uh, the fall of 1991, and uh, I thought she was pretty cute. I uh, wanted to get to know her, uh, but when I had met Kyla, uh, one of the things, she didn't know who God was. And when I met Kyla, she was at a pretty incredible season in her life of really kind of examining herself as it were of trying to figure out who she is and what she believes or what she doesn't believe. And, um, and that's when our kind of paths crossed. And so I liked her. I wanted her to like God. And so I invited her on a date. And because I'm just a genius with dating her, I took her to a seminar that was entitled uh, The Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God. <laughs> so guys, if you're looking to win a woman over... I can't think of a better way to do that than to bring her to a seminar called Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God. Now, in many ways, uh, it just made sense. The seminar made absolutely no sense because it was all about physics and mathematics and we had no clue what was going on. Uh, but what made sense was Kyla was at a place where she was really examining herself. This is what uh, Socrates actually said centuries ago, he said the unexamined life is not worth living. And this is exactly what Kyla was doing uh, 20 plus years ago, examining her life, who she is and what she believed and why she believed that. Um, and I was thankful that our paths crossed at that, at that very moment. Now, I look at a quote like this, the unexamined life is not worth living, and it just seems abrasive. It seems kind of harsh. So my question is, why did he say this? And why is this a quote that has just stood the test of centuries and centuries and so many others have quoted him in saying this? And as I've sat with this a long time, what I come to, my conclusion, is the unexamined life is not worth living is because there is so much in life that is worth examining. There is so much in our lives. There are so many great questions that are worth asking. And there are so many answers that are out there that are worth pursuing. And not to examine who you are and what you believe or what you don't believe or why you believe what you believe. Those are, these are crucial questions to not just who we are, but to how we live. And as Jeremy mentioned, today we start a brand new series this fall. And it's going to be a 10-week long series and it's really going to force you or challenge you, or that's my hope at least, to really examine yourself. Not just the world around you and the world in general terms, but I really want to put before you a challenge to really examine you of who are you and how are you even coming up with the definition of who you are and what do you believe and why do you believe that? And is what you believe, is it even true? And if you know it's true, then how did you come to the conclusion that it's true? So over 10 weeks, the conversations that we're going to be having, we're going to cover God, man, science, politics, religion, culture, 
suffering, sexuality, eternity, and we'll finish with, in December, uh, Christianity. Now, my aim in covering all of these conversations, these topics, is not so you walk away from here saying, oh, I now have a more informed opinion about these topics or these conversations. But my hope is really kind of a threefold thing, and this is three questions throughout the entire series I will be asking. And the first question is this, what does God, through his scriptures, have to say about this? What does God have to say about God? What does God have to say about man? What does God have to say about science or politics or religion or sexuality? God speaks on these things, so what is it God has to say? And the second question that we'll be pushing into or pressing into is, how do we apply what God actually says to how we actually live? It's not enough to say, well, I know what God says. I want to walk through, well, how do we apply what God says to actually how I live? And then the third question we'll just be asking is, how do we lovingly, and I really mean lovingly, how do we in a loving way, but a truthful way, how do we encounter those around us who are asking these questions? How do we encounter the people that we either live with or work with or play with? How can we engage them in a thoughtful, uh, loving, winsome way with the, the conversations and the, the questions that they, they have? Now, you're going to see this today, but I'm really hoping that I will raise actually more questions than I'm actually going to be able to answer. And I promise you that some of you will even get walk out of here frustrated. Well, how can he say that? Or how can he think that? Or how can he believe that? And ultimately, my hope is that you will leave here and begin the conversations with people around you. Meaning, I hope that this is going to happen today and tomorrow and Tuesday and throughout your week of, hey, I've been really thinking about, I've been really wondering about this, about God or man or science or politics or whatever. And I hope that you would go to people and say, I've been really wondering and trying to examine what I think and what I don't think and why I think the way I think. What do you think about this? That you would engage people with this conversation because the conversation is not meant just to be one way. It's not meant just for, for you and, and you alone. And so we say this every week at, uh, at, at church, at Genesis, is we really want you to be in a community group. And really excited for the community groups this fall because we're focusing on the conversations that we're having in here. And the conversations are best had in community and listening and learning to what other people are saying and what other people are thinking. So if you're not in a community group, today's a great day to sign up to be in a community group so you can carry on this conversation and learn from other people. Now, we got 10 weeks. 10 weeks. This is going to take us all the way up to Christmas time. Now, as I've been thinking about, like, 10 weeks from now, how would we know that this was a success? Like, how would we know that this past 10 weeks was a really beneficial, successful 10 weeks? And here are five ways that I think if we were able to scratch the surface with these, we could say, man, it was a great fall together. Number one would be this, that we grow in learning how to think and live biblically, that our worldview would be a gospel-centered worldview, that you and I would learn how to live and how to think biblically. You may have not thought about it like this, but you have a worldview, 
all of us, if you're human, you have a worldview. And a worldview is just simply the way you look at the world, the way you understand the world, the way you process the world. So when I ask you, hey, what do you believe about God? Your immediate response is filtered through your worldview. So you'll either believe or not believe, or the questions you're asking are coming from the worldview that you have. Some of us have piecemealed together worldviews from different places. But my hope is that we'd learn how to live and think biblically. That our worldview would be, this is how God wants me to think about this. This is how Jesus wants me to understand this. The second thing would be this, that we'd be inspired to dig deeper. Inspired to further explore the grand mysteries of God and life with God. This is another way of just saying, I really hope that you would be willing this fall just to dig deep. To dig deep into God and who God is and what God is like and what life with God and all the questions that surround that. Really dig deep into those questions. It would be easy to check out and just say, you know what, I don't want to think about these things. It's too taxing on my brain. I just don't have the mental bandwidth because I'm just so busy with all of these other things. The things we're going to be talking about in here, in community group, these are the things that are worth examining your life. So dig deep uh, this fall. The third thing would simply be this, that we'd know, we'd grow in knowing not only what to believe, but understanding how and why we came to believe what we believe. I would venture to say, if there's maybe a hundred of you here right now, hey, what do you believe about God? I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, would say, well, this is what I believe. I'm not saying you would say that without question, but I'm saying you probably have come to of, I believe this. My question to you would simply be, do you know why you believe that? How did you come to that belief? Was it just passed on to you and you've just accepted it? This is just the way it is. So why do you believe what you believe? So it, it certainly is begging the question is what you believe. Is it even right? But how did you come to believe that? And my hope this fall is that you'd be able to articulate to someone who says, well, why do you believe that? Well, here's why. Here's how I came to that conclusion. Here's how I came to this understanding. Rather than just like, listen, don't bug me on this. I believe it. Let it go. That you'd have a thoughtful answer to the question. Number four would be this, that we know how to engage the culture around us in winsome and informed ways. That you know how to give reasoned answers. That you know how to give reasoned answers to the questions that people have about God, life, and other small topics. Number five, that we'd have a conviction that Christianity provides the most convincing and compelling answers to the reality of our lives. That would be a great win. That if we got to 10 weeks from now, and your answer was, you know, I knew Christianity was a good way, but now I'm convinced that this is the most compelling way to live life. That Christianity provides the most reason, the most thoughtful answers to life and life's most challenging questions. In a great book, we've got... Uh, they may have all been taken up at uh, the first service, but it's called Conversations with C.S. Lewis uh, by Robert uh, Velderday. He says this, We strive, we seek, we find. We examine the evidence, we weigh it, we follow it, and whether it, uh, wherever it leads. 
In my estimation, the evidence leads to God. Christianity is the best explanation of reality. Some of you might say, I'm on board with that. I agree with that. But 10 weeks from now, I'd want you to say, not only do I agree with that, but here's why I agree with that. Here's why I can come to the exact same conclusion because I have sought, I've asked questions, I've been challenged, and I've done this in community, and here are my convictions that Christianity offers the most reasoned answers to life and and to God. So today, we start with God. We start with God because how you answer the question about God, whether he exists or doesn't exist, will shape everything moving forward. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who's a great pastor, author, said this, God, whose existence or non-existence is essential to defining everything else. So what you believe or don't believe about God is going to define everything else. So we have to start with the conversation or the topic of God. Now, my question to you is simply this. What questions do you have about God? And you've got a, a, a note card in front of you. I'd encourage you to take that out and write some of these, the questions that you have. It's not what questions do you have for God. That presupposes there is a God. I'm asking what questions do you have about God? So it's not like, God, why do you do this or why don't you do this? My questions that I wrote down, is there a God? If yes, well, what is he like? Where is he? What is he? Is God actually God? Does God actually know that he's God? Can I know him? If yes, well, how can I know him? Does God actually want to know me? And if yes, I know me. I don't even always like me, so why would God want to know me as well? Another question that's not first posed by me is a great question of, can man actually live without God? Those are just a few questions that come to mind for me about what questions do I have about God? What questions do you have? What questions are you asking, wondering, or curious about, about God? Now, the reality is there's no shortage of questions about God, and equally so, there's not a shortage of people who have answers about these questions. And the beauty, whether you are a theist or anti-theist, meaning an atheist, everyone has an opinion on God. If you're human, you have an opinion on God. Sigmund Freud said this, God is only our human yearning and dread. God is the father we need and yet need to kill. We invented him to alleviate our fears, yet seek to destroy him as the object of our fear. He is the primary wish fulfillment and our most menacing rival. Now, if you're familiar with Sigmund Freud, um, if you're not, that's okay. But if you are, he was uh, known for being an atheist, an anti-theist, did not believe in God. So I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but what I find interesting and would agree with is his point that humanity has two minds towards God. Two minds meaning we want God, we want a God who provides, but he doesn't intrude. We want a God who protects, but never demands, or never judges, or never meddles. We want a God who is near when needed, 
but knows how to keep his distance. We are a people, a, a humanity, as it were, of two minds as it relates to God. So again, whether you're theist or anti-theist, you have thoughts on God. I think the big question uh, that we need to wrestle with is whether or not you're thinking about God as right. So we all have thoughts. Sigmund Freud, I would say, was wrong. He was wrong in his thinking about God, and it read, led him to make wrong conclusions, as it were, and life choices. The study of God, theology, as it were, uh, is an amazing, amazing study. Charles Spurgeon, who is, uh, uh, if you've been here for more than just, I don't know, 30 seconds, I've probably quoted him. Charles Spurgeon, at the age of 20, at the age of 20, said this, No subject of contemplation will humble the mind more than thoughts of God. But while it humbles the mind, it expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. I like how he just said, he who often thinks of God. Your mind will expand. It would be impossible not to have thoughts or questions, ideas about God and have a mind that is expanding and growing. But the question is, is what you're thinking about God is it right? Is it accurate? Now, A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So whatever comes into your mind when I say God, that's the most important thing about you. And Tozer said that, and I agree with him, because what you think about God or don't think about God will shape every aspect of your life. Every decision you make or don't make, every choice you make or don't make, every direction you go will be influenced by what you believe or don't believe about God. Now, it shapes absolutely everything. It just defines who we are and basically how we operate. Now, I want to give you the example of, uh, this is a challenge. When you have a belief, you need to take what you believe and follow it to its lo most logical ending or most logical conclusion. And so I'll start with someone who is an anti-theist, someone who just declares that there is absolutely no God. They build their life around the belief that there is no God. But if you were to build your life around the idea that there is no God, what is the end game there? What is the conclusion? Where does that belief lead you? Remember, what we believe or don't believe shapes us, shapes all of us. So if you're anti-theist, where does the road go? And this is not my exhaustive list. This is just two things. I would say, number one, it leads to a life of hopelessness or a life of despair. Now, why do I say that? Because simply, someone who is an anti-theist basically says that there is no God. Famous anti-theist, atheist Bertrand, uh, Bertrand Russell said this, life is an accidental collection of atoms. If that's true, if you believe that your life is but random, an accident, accidental collection of atoms, how on earth could you have any meaning or purpose or hope in your life? Because your life is it 
You're an accident. There was no design or intentionality or purpose to you. You're here because you're just a cosmic accident. Atoms randomly coming together to form you, your person, your character. To me, the logical conclusion of someone who's an anti-theist leads to despair. How could you have any hope where there is no meaning or purpose? I think even more so, if you were an anti-theist, the logical conclusion would lead you to say that life is ultimately unlivable. And what I say is unlivable is, if you're an anti-theist, it would be impossible to actually have moral standards, meaning in a world where God does not exist, there can be no meaningful foundation of values of right or wrong or good or evil. In order for something, for us to declare that something is good, there has to be a standard of good. So where is that standard of good coming from? If you do not believe in God, then the standard of good, wrong or evil, is formed by, by who? By you? So if you are anti-theist and atheist and believe there is no God, then what is good to you, well, might not be good for someone else. Now, I, I realize this might sound like a very extreme example, but consider Hitler. Hitler was a student of Nietzsche. If you're not familiar with Nietzsche, he was the one who was a very famous anti-theist. God is dead was probably what he's most remembered for. Hitler, highly influenced by the philosophy and the thoughts of Nietzsche. Now, I have never been uh, to Auschwitz in Germany, but a lot of the reading and studying that I've done, I came across this story of a man who traveled and a man who was once an atheist, but in his journeys, in his journey, discovered the truths of who God were. And when he saw this sign hanging outside one of the death camps uh, in Auschwitz, it was a sign that was posted there for people to remember that this is the road, this is the end of the road for people who believe that there is no God. And there's a sign, uh, and the, uh, it's a quote from Hitler. It says this, I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience and morality. We will train young people before whom the world will tremble. I want young people capable of violence, imperious, relentless, and cruel. That's just a snapshot of the quote. And the sign hangs there to be a remembrance of the horrific tragedies of millions and millions of people who died at the hands of a man who said there is no God, and because there is no God, his good, even though it was evil, he followed that path. My point in all of this is what you believe about God will shape all of who you are. It is the most important thing about you. But I want you to really wrestle with is what follow the path of what you believe and where does it lead? For me, the path of atheism or anti-theist, that there is no God, it is a life of hopelessness and despair because it's void of meaning and purpose and it is a life that's unlivable because there is no moral good or moral standards that's shaped just by us. In his book, uh, Conversations with C.S. Lewis, uh, 
Robert says this, when men and women step away from absolute moral standards rooted in God, they step into a void, an empty world where right and wrong do not really exist in a meaningful way. The human race will be destroyed by such thinking, not because absolute moral standards do not exist, but because men and women of this kind have removed themselves from this realm. They, in fact, are no longer even human as God intended them to be. Their own desires will shape their behavior. That's another way of saying, because there is no God, I will be God, and I will do whatever I want, no matter what harm or devastation or destruction it causes. The logical conclusion of life without God is a life that I don't want. And it's a life that I hope you wouldn't want. And it's a life that many people are currently living. And my hope is that you, if you are one who believes in God, would begin to engage those around you about the road that they are on. Now, I want to make a case, as it were, uh, for God, for life with God, and why I've personally come to the conclusion that there is a God. There's a great book, uh, it's in our cafe, it's one of our recommended reads uh, by J.A. Packer. I don't have it on the screen, but I want to read it to you, uh, and it talks about the importance of knowing God, that if you don't know God, how could you possibly live? And he says this, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, and this is where this man lives, put him down without explanation and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. He says to live not knowing God is really to be cruel to yourself. Cruel to be yourself because you would live life confused as to who you are, your origins, where you came from. Confused as to purpose and meaning and significance. To live not knowing God would be to live life lost in a world that you didn't create and that you don't have control over. So it's a really important decision of what is it you believe about God. Now, before I ask the question, what is God like? Again, that presupposes there is a God. I want to ask the question, does he exist? Does God exist? And if he exists, how do you know he exists? Have you ever seen him? Have you ever heard him? I, I, like, do, have you ever seen him like you can see me now? Have you ever heard him like you can hear my voice projected. So if most of us have not seen him or heard him, how are you coming to the conclusion that you believe in him? Well, some would say, well, Michael, that's called faith. And I don't disagree with that. But do you know why you've placed your faith in someone you've not seen and someone you've not heard? How would you explain that to someone who doesn't believe in God? Well, I believe in God. Well, okay, why? Well, I don't know. I just do. That's, that's, that, I, I don't know. That's just what I do. My parents told me about it. My friends told me about it. And that's just, that's what I believe. God exists. But why? 
my answer to the question of why I believe God exists. I think it's pretty simple. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the beginning, God. The reason that I can say with absolute confidence, absolute conviction, absolute assurance that God exists, that I believe in God, that God exists, the reason that I can say that is simply because God's chosen to reveal himself to us. That's it. I didn't find him. I didn't figure him out. The reason that I can say that God exists is because God's chosen to reveal himself to me. That's it. If God had not chosen to reveal himself to us, to you, to me, I would be left wondering, well, I don't know if God exists. I hope he does. But I have assurance. I have absolute assurance that he exists. Why? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And the rest of the story of God from Genesis to Revelation is God revealing himself to you, to humanity, to me. Now, there are many ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. I want to highlight three, and I'd encourage you to write these down because in the conversations you'll have, I hope this comes up. Well, you say you believe in God. Why do you believe in God? Well, God's revealed himself. Well, what does that mean? Well, here are three ways that God's chosen to reveal himself. Number one is this, creation. Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Meaning, we know that God is there. Why? Because God has made it so clear, so obvious, that we can't miss it. How? For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. I cannot walk outside and look at the world around me and declare, this just showed up. Like, we just have to open our eyes to see that the world we live in is not the world we made, is not the world we sustain, is not the world we created. And so God says, you just need to open your eyes, look to the creation to see that there is a God. That's number one. Number two would simply be this, Scripture. No less than ten times in Genesis 1, it says God said, God speaks. So how do I know God exists and why God's re- or how God's revealed himself is just creation. Live with my life, uh, my eyes open. And then God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his spoken word. God speaks time and time again, Old Testament, New Testament. God speaks. God is speaking and saying and revealing things about him, things about us, things about his story, his plan, his purpose. I like how it says in Hebrews 4, For the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It's another way of saying God's voice, his word, is really powerful. God's word can cut through you, meaning it knows you. Your thoughts, your fears, your confusions. God's word, I know God exists. He's revealed himself because God speaks. 
Number three is simply this, Jesus. If you want to know God, just look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God cares about, what God loves, look to Jesus. Scripture says this of Jesus in Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Jesus. You want to know what God looks like. And I don't mean physical being, but you want to know what God is like. We just look to Jesus. Colossians. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians 2. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God. In Christ is God. Disciples, that follow, the men that followed Jesus, there was 12 of them. And as Jesus was preparing them for what would become his death, his, his, uh, his death on a cross, and was telling them what was going to happen to him, his disciples said, we don't want this to happen to you. We don't want you to go. And, G and Philip is asking uh, Jesus some great questions, one of the disciples. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Meaning, can you show us God? If you could just do that, if you could just kind of pull back the sky and let us peek into the heavens so we could see God, then we're, we're totally with you. We believe. And Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I don't know if Philip just fell backwards when he heard that. But Jesus made it plain as day. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Plato once said that he hoped one day there would come a logos from God that would make everything clear. Logos in Greek just means word. And what Plato said is, I'm, I'm hoping that one day there will be a word from God that will explain all of this that will make everything clear. Jesus is the Logos of God. He is the Word of God. He is God revealed to us. How do I know God exists? Well, God's revealed Himself. Well, what has God revealed? How has He revealed Himself? Creation, Scripture, and Jesus. Now, I want to, in many ways, we can celebrate this, but... Isn't it amazing that you can leave here today, however you came in and whatever your thoughts about God were, and leave here saying, you know what, I don't even need to be confused about God. I don't need to be confused about God because God's made himself known. It's not guesswork anymore. It's not like, I hope he's like this, or I wish he's like this. We leave here with conviction of, well, I don't guess because God's revealed and this is what he has revealed. Now, because God's chosen to reveal himself, isn't the next question, well, what's he like? We can see God is God, is God from creation and, and scripture and Jesus, but what's he like? If someone were to ask you the question and they didn't believe in God, hey, how would you describe God? 
what would you say? How would you describe God? What words would you use to describe? Well, since you asked, let me tell you, God is... If someone asked me, this is what I'd say. God is infinite, eternal, incomprehensible, supreme, sovereign, transcendent, majestic, ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, unchanging, holy, wise, righteous, loving, faithful, good, merciful, patient, just, full of grace, compassionate, kindness, and goodness. He is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. God is God, and there's no one like him. I'd take a breath, and I'd keep going. That is not an exhaustive list of what God is like. But the only reason that I can come up with such a short list of what God's like is because God's chosen to reveal himself. That's it. I didn't make that up. I didn't come up with that from some other person's thoughts. This is what God has revealed to us of what he's like. Genesis all the way to Revelation is a picture of this is what God is like. I like how it says in Deuteronomies, Deuteronomy, He showed you these things so you would know that the Lord is God and there's no other. So remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord is God both in heaven and on earth. There is no other. The reason God allowed you to see all of what He has revealed to you. Why? So that you would know He's God so that you would come to the conclusion that He is God. Now, I want to finish uh, pretty quickly with sharing a story with you. It's a story of, of one man's encounter with God. And it was an encounter with God that left this man changed. And it literally not just changed him, but it changed an entire nation. Because when God reveals Himself to us in all of those attributes that we looked at, He's not revealing himself so you, you and I can be, have great theoretical knowledge of God. So we can talk about God as if he's some science project in the sky that we need to dissect. He didn't reveal those things to you, to me, so we'd have great Bible Jeopardy answers. He revealed himself to us so that we'd have relational knowledge. Meaning that we would not just know about God, but that we would know him in a real way, in a personal way. And this encounter that this man named Moses had with God not only changed him, but changed history for... changed history. Moses, when he met God, was 80 years old. The first half of his 80 years, he was a man who was born into a Hebrew family. But he was a man who literally was, as an infant, rescued and brought into Egypt and raised in the home of the most powerful man in the known world, Pharaoh. So Moses had recollection of where he came from and the God that his people believed in, but he spent his formative growing up years in Egypt, which was a land of gods and goddesses. So if you were to ask Moses, what do you believe about God? Well, I don't know, I got lots of thoughts, I got lots of ideas, I got lots of beliefs about God. And if you probably asked him, he'd be like, well, the God of Israel, where I came from, doesn't look all that impressive. Because if he did, he'd be able to get those people out of Egypt. He'd free them from Pharaoh's hand. 
So in my mind, Pharaoh looks a little bit bigger, stronger, and tougher, more in control, because for 400 years, these people have been enslaved. So I'm guessing that Moses had all sorts of ideas about what God was like until he met God. If you have a Bible, uh, flip open to uh, Exodus chapter 3. We'll put it up on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your Bible, Exodus chapter 3. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro and the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it did not burn up. Moses said to himself, Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. He sees something that looks curious, and he goes to see it. What I love about looking at Moses is God had used all of the circumstances and the situation in Moses' life to prepare him for this moment, to prepare him for the moment where he would encounter God. And he encountered God in the strangest way possible. Wow, that bush is on fire, but yet it doesn't burn up. That's amazing. I'm curious to go see what this thing is. One of the things that I learn about God from this few verses is simply this. God will and has used all of the circumstances, good and bad and everything in between, to get you to the point where you'd meet him. Where you would have that life-changing, eternally changing moment where you meet God. God will put anything and everything, including a burning bush, in your way. Why? So that you'd be curious and say, you know what, That's, what is this? I must go see, I must go check it out. When it's time, and maybe for some of you, your time is right now, this moment, God will stop you in your tracks. He will stop you in your tracks so that you can encounter him. The story goes on. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. What I learned about God from that verse is simply this. God knows you before you know him. You might have ideas about God, but I want you to know this. God knows who you are well before you ever know him. And I don't mean know about him, but know him in a personal, relational way. What I love about this is he doesn't just know your name. I mean, that had to freak Moses out a little bit. How does this, whatever this is, how does it know my name? And this is God. He not only knows your name, but he knows you. He knows your fears, your anxieties, your hurts, your frustrations, your confusions, your doubts. He knows all of you. And guess what? He still calls out to you. He still calls out to you because God is a God who pursues. Story goes on. Do not come any closer, the Lord, Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
What do we learn about God from this? He's not like we think he is. God is God. And what Moses learns in this moment is God is holy. We can't even wrap our finite minds around what holiness means because we live in such a stained world. But he's encountered by the holiness, the perfectness, the absolute purity of God, and he covers his face. He didn't need to be told twice to take your shoes off. When one is encountered by God, what you will be encountered with first and foremost is the absolute perfection of who God is. There is no flaw in him. He is perfect in all of what he does and and says. He is absolutely holy. Story goes on. Then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. And I want you to listen. I have heard their cries of distress. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt to their own fertile and spacious land. Verse 9, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. I have seen how harshly the Egyptian abused them. Now verse, these few verses right here, Moses learned something about God and something we learn too. God sees, God knows, God cares. He's not indifferent. It's easy to accuse God of, you don't care because look at the situation and circumstance that I'm in. But maybe, just maybe, God has you there for the sole purpose so that you can meet him. Moses learns when he hears God speak, I see them. I care for them. I know of their suffering. And then he says, I will do something. I will save. I will rescue. I will lead. Now you have to guess, Moses is like, awesome. It's been years. I'm excited. What's the plan? How are you going to do this, great God? Great holy God. Because I'm so excited to watch you crush Egypt. Verse 10. Now go, for I'm sending you. I'm sorry, God. What did you say? Because you just told me that you see, you care, you'll save, you'll lead. Yeah, Moses, that's, that's what I will do. But God says to Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. What I learn about God in this one verse right there is that God desires to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. There's nothing special about Moses. Actually, for 40 years, he's been on the run, hiding in the lands he was because he murdered someone in Egypt and had to flee Egypt because they were going to kill him. So there's nothing intrinsically special about Moses, except God took an ordinary man and said, Go, I want to do extraordinary things with you and through you. And I love Moses' response. But Moses protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is saying, God, you got a backward plan because if you knew me, you knew that you got the wrong guy. I can't do that. And what I love, what happens next, God does not give Moses a pep talk here. and be Like, 
Come on. You need to have better self-worth. You need to think about yourself like this, that you are a strong person and you are a good leader and you can do it, Moses. God doesn't do that. What God does in verse 12, God answered. Moses asked, who am I? And God answered, I will be with you. Moses, you're nobody, but somebody is going to be with you. And this somebody wants to take a nobody like you and do great things. What I learn about God is that God is somebody. And God wants to work with nobodies like us to do great things. Why? Not because, we're, not because we can do it, but because somebody, meaning God, wants to use us to accomplish His plan and His will. Now, if you're in Moses' shoes, you've got to be thinking, all right, this is craziness. God, you really want me to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, I went for a morning walk. Now, let me tell you the story. I was on my morning walk. I saw a bush. It was on fire. It spoke. It told me to come to you to tell the people, to tell you to let the people go. That's the deal. So, Pharaoh, release the two million people that sustain your country. Let them go. Moses says to God, and no one had ever asked God this question before. God, I, I can't go to Moses because they're going to ask me, who are you to come to us, and who is it that sent you? And so Moses says to God, what is your name? No one had ever asked God for his credentials before. No one ever asked God to produce some, some identification of what your name is. God's name in Israel was Yahweh. It was so revered you didn't even say it out loud. And even when writing, writing it, they would shorten it as not to offend the great name of God. And what I love about uh, Moses' protest, if I go to the people of Israel, God of your ancestors has sent me, they will ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? And then in verse uh, uh, 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if you're Moses, you've got to be like, couldn't it have been an easier name? Like, what does that even mean? I am who I am? God says, yes, my name is I am. What does that even mean? Now, I don't have time to get into all of the incredible theological nuances of what this name means, but I am means to be. Literally, I be. And what God is ultimately revealing and saying to Moses about himself is this. I am, Moses, the center of everything. I am the owner of everything, the Lord of all. I am the creator, sustainer, and savior. I am inexhaustible and immeasurable. In a great book written by a, a pastor and worship leader, Louis Giglio, he said this. In a heartbeat, Moses knew God's name. And something more, he finally knew his. For if God's name is I am, Moses' name must be I am not. What prevents many people from coming to God and knowing God and walking with God and enjoying God is simply this, pride. The pride that we like to be the God of our lives. We like to be the one calling the shots. 
in control, doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. We want to be the I am. But when you are encountered by God, His name is I am. And I love what Louis Giglow said. Is There's got to come a point when you realize, wow, if that's God's name, I am. You come to the realization that I am not. I am not God. I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not, in the, I am not the solution. I am not the Savior. I am not all-knowing. I'm not holding it all together. I am not the Lord. I am not God. This is just one amazing story of a God who exists and a God who chose to reveal himself to Moses in the most curious way. Now you might say, well, where's my burning bush? Like, why doesn't this happen more frequently? Like, if I would see some bushes on fire and some voices coming from them, I would believe. And my answer to that is simply this. Like, why doesn't God do this? God did this. God showed up in Jesus. You want to know where God is? God came. God came to us to bring us to Him. Love First Peter Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Isn't that an amazing picture? He came to bring sinful people back safely to home with God. So when you wonder why God doesn't do this, you have to answer, he did this. He came. Well, is he, I want more. I, I want to be convinced. Can I just say, and I'll finish with this, God is still showing up. There are burning bushes all over the place. And do you know what? If you are a Christian, you might be that very burning bush that would convince someone else who has questions about God, who doesn't know God, is confused about God. You might be the very person who knows God, who is walking with God, enjoying God. You might be that very burning bush that would cause someone else to be curious. I see your joy. I see your hope. I see your peace. I see a difference in you. What's up? I know the I am. And I know I am not. And when I finally confessed that I am not God, I was able to come to God. And let me share with you more about who God is and what God has revealed to us about him. I find it humbling but just so inspiring to know that God might use me, that God might use you to point someone else to Him. You are where you are because God wants you to be there because you might be that bush that someone is just waiting to see. So God did show up and God continues to show up through His Spirit at work in each of us. Do you know God? You have ideas about God. You have thoughts about God. But my question is, do you know God? God's revealed himself to each of us. He's revealed himself to us so that we would not have theories about God, but we'd have a relationship with God. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And if you're a Christian, you've placed your faith in Jesus to make you right with God, then I would just ask that you would come and celebrate communion today with great humility and just 
gratitude. Because if you know God, that's an amazing thing. Because none of us deserve to know God. There's nothing in and of us that deserves to know God, but God loved you enough to reveal himself to you. So if you have a relationship with God, be humbled by that, but have deep gratitude in your heart that God's revealed himself, made himself known to you. And celebrate communion today with just such joy of God, thank you for not only making yourself known, but making it possible for me to know you through your son Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know God, you can leave here today with absolute assurance that you have a right relationship with God, not in your head, not in theory, but a real relationship with God. God makes clear only one way to God, and it's through His Son, Jesus. I'm going to have some of our leaders up on my left and right that if you have questions about how do I begin that relationship, and you want someone to pray with you to even begin that relationship, come up today and have someone talk with you and pray with you. This is too big to miss. Today is a day, if you don't know God, to begin a relationship with God by confessing that you're not Him and Jesus is the one who makes us right by forgiving sins and taking us to God. Father God, I give thanks for today. I give thanks for who you are. I give thanks for the... God, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. God, we did not deserve to have you reveal yourself to us, but in love. God, you've made yourself known. God, I thank you that you are good and kind and gracious and loving. God, I give thanks that you know each of us, not just our names, but you know our hurts and our fears and our pains. God, you know us in our stubbornness and our doubts, and yet you still love us and call us to a relationship with you. God, for those of us here who have a relationship with you, we say thank you. Thank you for making that possible. And God, for those that are here that are trying to figure out who you are, God, I pray that today would be the day they begin the relationship with you. I pray that today is the day that they confess, I am not, I am not, and confess you, God, as the great I am. When you're ready and as we worship, come and celebrate communion today.
riches I need not, man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always, there and thou first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure. Thy victory won, may I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever
wanna be close, close to your side. So heaven is real, and death is a lie. I wanna hear voices of angels above singing as one. Hallelujah, only holy God Almighty, the great I am, who is worthy, none beside thee, God Almighty, the great I am. be near, near to your heart, loving the world and hating the dark. I want to see dry bones living again, singing as one. Hallelujah, holy, holy. God Almighty, the great I am, who is worthy, there's none beside thee, God Almighty, the great I am, the great I am, yeah, yeah. You're the great I am, oh, great I am. The mountains shake before you, the demons run and flee. And at the mention of your name, King of Majesty. There is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am, the great I am, the great I am, the great I am, the great I am. Hallelujah, holy, 
God, you are the great I am. As we go from this place, God, that is our confession. That there is none like you. God, there is none like you. God, you are the great I am. The creator and sustainer of all things. The savior. God, you are the one who gives us meaning and purpose. God, we celebrate and say thank you that you have invited each of us, I am not, to know the great I am. God, we love you and we give thanks that you have first revealed your love for us. God, as we go from this place, I pray, God, that we would go singing this anthem that you are the great I am, that you are holy. And God, that you would use us this week to encourage someone towards you that we might be that burning bush to point the way towards you. Jesus, we love you and we give you thanks. We pray that in your name. Amen. I wanted to to say thanks uh, to this amazing team that came in to... to lead us uh, today. And uh, I think what's... Even more amazing is they've never played together before. Uh, this is a team of uh, men and women who are at five different churches, and uh, they came here today uh, representing five different churches uh, to serve us and to lead us into worship. They all lead and serve on worship teams where uh, they are. And uh, today, to me, <laughs> what an amazing picture of the family of God working together to make much of God uh, because He's the great I Am. So guys, thanks. Uh, and Meg, uh, for uh, serving us today and just uh, leading us in a time of just phenomenal worship. So uh, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, before you guys leave, we'd love, if you are new, to connect with this community because God's doing some great stuff. You can fill out that Connect card, drop it off at the Welcome Center. Please take this uh, Welcome to the City uh, flyer pamphlet with you because we'd love to see you join us on the city where we're going to be communicating and helping uh, people get connected with one another. Uh, hopefully we'll see you downtown Woburn because we're going to love this city like crazy today in a practical way of just picking up some trash. So love you guys. Excited for what has happened here today and more excited for what God's doing moving forward. Uh, Have an awesome rest of this day. God bless. Peace out.